Welcome to episode 183 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Surprise. Don't call it a comeback. Yeah, it's not a comeback. It, I mean, it is. So let's just get to it. I've got an affirmation for you. Hit me. So we have rebooted the Society of Reform Podcasters. This is still the podcast of brotherly love, but we are now uh, back in the saddle with the Society of Reform Podcasters. We have uh, a whole new lineup, some old, some new. Uh, all really great. So we uh, obviously the Reform Brotherhood is still going strong. Uh, Reform Pilgrims came back after their little hiatus, and we also have some newcomers. Uh, there's a new podcast called the Bobcast, which is an awesome name, which is a group of seminary students who are kind of working through the works of Herman Bobbing, which our listeners know we love. And then uh, we've played around a little bit and uh, you know jabbed back and forth with the guys over at Distilling theology but they're making some great content and uh, they've joined us as well and then fast god stuff uh is also part of the network uh it takes a long time for you guys to put together the quality stuff that you're doing so uh we're expecting another episode soon hopefully it's coming but uh, we're gonna start out we've got these five shows we're getting going again and i could not be more excited i'm super stoked about this the buffet is back so if you're looking for like a verifiable feast of all kinds of good reformed theological content. I know there's lots of sources out there, but we're a bit unique because look at that lineup. If you look at each one, there's something very distinct and special about each one of those podcasts and you're not going to find that anywhere else. So, I mean, I guess we're just, this is me shamelessly self-promoting all those wonderful podcasts, but these are like dear brothers. And so I think that anybody who would like to listen and gain a little bit more understanding about reformed theology should just go out and grab that feed. Actually, is the feedback it is. The feed is back, and it's got all of the content from these five shows oh, up yes. and running. So uh, you can check it out at reformpodcasts.com. Uh, don't go to Reformed Podcast. Uh, that's something very different we discovered last time around. But uh, you can subscribe to the Mega Feed right on the webpage. Mega Feed. And as I said, it's it's back. It's back, baby. It's I'm, back. I'm super excited. It's back. Well, let me transition to my affirmation, which basically just piggybacks off of that. And that is, we are so blessed when any one of our listeners decides by God's grace that they want to provide a little bit of financial resource to us to help us keep this thing going. And that includes the Society of Reformed Podcasters. And we use that for those funds to take care of all of the amazing and surprising incidental expenses that come with hosting and publishing and processing all this stuff. You'd be surprised how much it costs. And so I want to thank brother Steven who stepped up and this week committed through Patreon to give monthly toward the podcast. I cannot say, I mean, there is no limit to my gratitude because this is the kind of thing that does demand some resource. And so we're just so thankful for those who, after they have satisfied their first commitment to giving to their church, say, you know what? God has encouraged me to give a little bit of my abundance toward this goal. Man, we appreciate that. And honestly, it keeps things going. 
it, it does. It's really those resources that keep us being able to do this. So if you also are feeling the same way and would like to give a little bit, you can do that in a couple of ways. The best way is just to go to reformedbrotherhood.com and you'll find the link in the upper right-hand corner for Patreon. You can also pick up some of the swag that we have there by way of going to confessional wear. Either of those things support us and we're just insanely grateful. But again, like your first commitment, of course, should be to your local church. And if after that, you're sensing that the Lord is giving you this sense that you'd like to give toward the work that we're doing, we really would appreciate that. Yeah. And the the best thing about it, you know, we, Jesse and I are very careful with the, the resources that uh, our listeners have graciously provided for us. But what's really nice is that when we do finally come to the decision that we want to do something, whether it's, you know, we recently changed to a different host that allows us to publish our uh, material a little easier and a little bit right. further, um, or whether, you know, it's, it's um, doing a contest or something like that. Um, it's nice because we don't have to worry about where those funds are coming from because we've got consistent, stable uh, donors who are are supporting the show. So we're able to to do things a little bit more um, freely without that constraint than we would otherwise. So I personally appreciate it. Um, it, it really is humbling to see that people are are willing to kind of partner with us in this crazy experiment we call the Reform Brotherhood. Yeah. So thank you to Brother Stephen for being willing to give and to give so generously. Also, like maybe this is just super lame, but I feel like we should kind of mention it. We do try to keep, and by we, I basically mean Tony, because Tony is the one that's crushing this on our behalf. Tried to keep up with the technology such that we're delivering the podcast in a way where there's like the least amount of pain points and barriers. So when we switch the hosting, I know some have said, <laughs> oh, all my feeds didn't update and we're sorry about that. We're, yeah. We got that all worked out. Tony did a fantastic job. But in the switching, it allowed for greater download speed, much more accessibility. And our website is super fast now. It used yeah. to be like really slow. So like yeah. if you wanted to search for a piece of content or you want to try to find a podcast on some particular topic, it used to be like so painful. So we're trying to do a better job at making everything accessible because freely we have received and freely want to, we want to give. We want this resource to be for everybody who is searching for God and trying to follow closely after the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah. I feel like we should uh, like give away like duffel bags or something like PBS pledge drive style, like NPR commemorative. Yeah. Commemorative plates or something like that. <laughs> Actually, that's a really great idea. I would love a commemorative <laughs> plate with your face and mine on it. Uh, I don't know if that's a, some, something we're going to do. Maybe we could. No, we, we'll that's see. Great. Think about this. You're at, especially like if you're, your Methodists. I know you guys love the potlucks. You're on a potluck. Somebody presents a plate of deviled eggs. Our faces are on that plate underneath. <laughs> That's killer. Uh, that is killer. Well, Jesse, we have some denials too, but we'll keep them. We'll keep them short because I have a feeling this is a topic today that we're going to want to talk about a lot. So, what are you denying? We'll flip it up okay. a little. So, real quick, because we're in this really strange day and age of the pandemic. I'm denying against a piece of language that I've, I've seen and heard used all over the place. And that is people saying things like we live in uncertain times and I understand what they're trying to get at there. I just don't like the word and I deny its usage in this sentence because there's a difference between what's unknown and what's uncertain. And the only way I can think about this with my turn of mind is with respect to like the mathematical discipline of probability. If you have a die that has six sides on it, one through six, you know that the one will come up in the long term one out of six times. That's the only time it can come up. One out of six is its probability. That's 16.6, like repeating, I think. That is a certainty. 
However, any given roll of the die, it, you're, it's unknown what is actually going to come up. And that's my example by way of saying, I think we should change our language when we talk here, because what's certain is that God is in control. We may not know what tomorrow brings, but the yeah. certainty that he is sovereign over all things should be so prevalent in our language that we're very particular about how we describe what's going on. So I'm much more comfortable with this idea of like, of course, tomorrow is unknown, but I think actually what's ahead of us is very certain. And that is God is doing his work and his control. Something that we spoke about, I think two episodes ago, and I would refer people back to that. So yeah. I'm denying against just the specific word of like uncertainty, because I think that's not really the best Christian way to describe what's happening. How about you? Yeah. What are you denying? Well, before I go on to my denial, I just want to piggyback on that a little bit. I would add that, especially for those who have some sort of public venue for prayer, so the way that we speak about God is one thing. Uh, the way that we speak publicly about God is another thing. Right. But the way that we speak to God publicly is entirely different. And, you know, I've heard some people in, in the midst of this crisis who are praying and they use that language of uncertainty or insecurity or something in reference to the state of the church or the state of God's people in prayer. And first of all, I think that's actually maybe a little bit inadvertently blasphemous, but um, you know, people pay attention to you when you're praying right. in a way that they otherwise wouldn't. And and the reason is because when prayer corporately is working the way it's supposed to, we are supposed to be listening to the person praying because we should be expressing our agreement in our hearts with that person. So if you're a person who has some sort of venue or some sort of responsibility that, that um, brings you into a position to pray publicly on any sort of regular basis, be mindful and thoughtful about how you're praying. There's a big difference between praying, God, we don't know what's going to happen, but we trust that it's for your glory and for our good. Right. And praying, God, we don't know what to ha what's going to happen. We're so scared. So please comfort us. Like both of those are, are in their own way. They're, they're very valid prayers. Like it's okay to tell God that we're scared. It's okay to, to ask for his comfort and for his, um, his guidance, but praying publicly about how scared we are is not really a way that's probably going to edify the church all that much. So just be thoughtful and mindful how you use your language, even even when you're talking to unbelievers, right? The difference between someone who's, who says these are uncertain times, meaning I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know if I'm going to have a job. I'm no, I don't know if I'm going to have food to eat. I don't know if I'm going to get sick and die versus a believer who says these are these are times that we're not sure what's going to happen, but... I trust that all things happen for God's glory and for my good. Like that's a very different testimony to the world. Right. I, that's a good word right there. I, I appreciate you buttressing my denial because that's kind of my point is that yeah. it's one thing to say that things are unknown. It's another thing to say that they're uncertain. And the Christian has this wonderful worldview that is rooted in the fact that even though we do not know what will happen tomorrow, there are certain certainties at play here that never go away. Yeah. And so we just got to be careful how even in the midst of the pandemic, like this is the time of all times where we should be able to say we are certain in our faith, certain in what God is doing. And therefore we may go into tomorrow knowing that things are not going to be like we're not prescient. And yet at the same time, we don't lose confidence because we have a certainty. Yeah. So that that's merely what I was trying to emphasize there. Perfect. So now on to you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Now no problem. on to you. <laughs> what are you so denying? I'm denying laziness and mostly I'm speaking of my own laziness. Um, you know, I've, okay. I've mentioned uh, in the past that I'm working on this program through the North American um, Reform Seminary and I almost said North American Patristic Society and that's something different. Um, I, I'm working on this program and I just haven't made a lot of progress. 
And, you know, I, I kind of look at like all the reasons that I haven't made a lot of progress, but most of them boil down to me just not buckling down and doing it. And, you know, I've been thinking a lot during this time, you know, you mentioned a couple weeks ago on the show, you haven't really found it to be the case that you have sort of come into all this extra time that some people are reporting. But there are a lot of us who are discovering for one reason or another that we seem to have more time available to, to do whatever we want with it. Um, and I think the frustration that people have is that we can't do a lot of the things we want to do with it. Um, because you know, we can't go out, we can't, we can't go to the movies. We can't, uh, go out for dinner. We can't go see our friends. So we probably have a little bit more time, but then we also more acutely feel the extra time that we have. Well, my encouragement in, in the form of a denial is to not waste this time. Right. So, you know, um, sometimes you hear people say, well, I can't really get through the Bible in a year because I don't have enough time. Well, most people have a 15 to 30 minute commute to get to work. Well, guess what happens if you read the Bible for 15 minutes every day? You get through the Bible in about a year. Um, you know, most people have a 15 to 30 minute commute. Well, guess what? There's all sorts of seminary lectures you can listen to that are about 30 minutes long if you listen to them at one and a half or two times speed. So this isn't to say or stand in judgment over any particular group of people or particular person. But, you know, we, we are commanded in the scripture to number the days and to make use of the time and to be wise with the resources that God has given us. And the one resource that uh, we have that we can't make more of, that we can't reclaim if we've lost it, that we can't somehow, um, you know, multiply is time. So although this pandemic is kind of scary and, you know, it's it's a weird situation to be in, we should recognize that there are some unique blessings that have been granted to us in this time. Um, you know, the same thing could be said about your money. Like most people are not spending anywhere near as much money on gas. Uh, well, what are you doing with those extra funds? Are you just using it to buy more movies on, on, you know, Xbox or something like that? Or are you using it to God's glory? People are talking about this stimulus check. Well, are you remembering that your church probably needs some extra additional economic stimulus too, because people aren't going to the building and they forget that they still should probably send their checks to the church. So just be thoughtful and mindful. But for me right now, it's really about saying, I have this extra time. I have these extra resources. How am I best going to use them uh, in a way that would honor and glorify God and would be a way that God would be pleased to further my sanctification through? So I'm going to call this the Isaac Newton juke. So basically he just said, listen, Isaac Newton invented calculus in his quarantine. What are you doing? That's true. <laughs> That's true. I'm sure all sorts of interesting stuff has happened during people's quarantines. Yeah, probably. But I, I really like that encouragement because it's a bit like it's easy to get sucked into, especially like social media stuff when like you just feel like you have a bit of downtime and it, it really is challenging. And I would encourage everybody. I think we've even talked about this at some point on the podcast where we've affirmed applications. You can file that under the application affirmation that help track your time, what you're spending yeah. your time on. And I think we would all be surprised, just like our money, if we actually took an inventory where we spend our time, that we actually have plenty of time. And maybe this just shows that there's more time than we think we have, but it's just about being disciplined with it. So I think yeah. we can always use that in kind of encouragement. Like, I think I always need somebody, like if you could just follow me around in my house and just say to me, like, do you really need to do that right now? <laughs> that would be like immensely helpful to me. Cause honestly, I probably say most of the time, no, I don't, I should, I should be doing something else. Yeah. And I actually think that the odd thing is like social media distractions, they're like empty calories. Like we talked about, like, yeah, the double stuffed Oreo 
looks really appealing and it might be delicious. But after you eat six of those bad boys, you're going to feel pretty awful. Whereas you should have just had the salad. You'll feel better. You'll actually be strengthened and you'll be more empowered to go about your business. So I'm going to stop because it, so many metaphors are coming together right now. We already I, mentioned calculus and salad and empty calories. I feel like your analogy of eating the salad rather than the six double stuffed cookies. Have you been spying on me? Because <laughs> that's the one thing that I have felt a little bit convicted of more so than others in this oh, really? is like I'm just eating like like just garbage all the time. Not that I eat particularly healthy ordinarily. Like I don't have a terrible diet, but I don't have like a super, super healthy diet. But it seems like during this time, it's just so easy to like just pig out. I think it's because we have sort of this like extra time we don't know what to do with. Like we've talked about how in our family, like a bag of chips only lasts for about 30 seconds. It's like only single. It's like hyenas finding a dead gazelle on the Serengeti is it's just gone. And it's so easy to just like pound through a bag of chips without even realizing it um, when you're kind of reduced to like sitting on the couch for most of the day. Okay, so before we actually get to the topic, then I feel like now we actually have to disclose this. What is like in this environment? My wife and I have a word for this. We call it the snack trap. It's when like, you know, you should be eating better, but the stuff is there. You just fall into eating it. What is your snack trap? Um, it's not so much a snack trap. It's more like ordering pizza. So <laughs> like, like I love pizza and you know, th- there's a certain element of like, we want to support our local businesses. So of we course. are, we are eating, you know, out a little bit more. We're ordering out a little bit more intentionally um, because we know that those businesses are not doing as well. And it's important for us to support our community. We've been given the means to do that. And this is one of the ways that we feel like we've done it. But that also makes it incredibly easy to justify ordering pizza rather than making a salad or whatever it is. So for me, it's like if if I don't want to cook, it's like, do you want to order a pizza? And the answer is always yes for me. So it's kind of <laughs> like if someone at Christmas when we're all home says, do you want to open a bag of chips? The answer is always yes. Always yes. Uh, even when it should be no. So for me, do you want to order a pizza? The answer is always yes. What about you? Just rhetorical. I, unfortunately, it's not going to be really unique. I got to go with chips. Like, in fact, my wife was just at the grocery store yesterday And she said, do you want me to get chips? And I said to her, please do not. She was like, are you sure? And I was like, do not ask me that question again, because I will break down. But right now I know if they're in the house, isn't that lame though? Like I actually have to say, if they're here, I will eat them. That's how like, I wish I had greater self-control or something so small and stupid. But if chips are delicious, chips are proof that God loves us and wants us to be happy in this life. They're just so amazing. I don't know that I've ever met a chip I don't want to put in my mouth. I can't think I of think one. I think that's probably true. Yeah. I really can't think of one. Yeah, I'm an equal opportunity chip eater. I will eat just about anything. Yes. And we joke about the fact that every bag is a single serving size. But really, again, I've mentioned this before. If I'm eating the chips, my wife will usually at some point say to me, do you need me to take those away? And it's like a dog with a bone. Like I kind of get upset at first when she says it to me because I, I want to say... I'm a grown man. You don't think I can make my own decisions? And then I think I'm a grown man who can't make his own decisions when it comes to chips. I need somebody to take these away from me. Yeah. That always happens at, uh, when we're all home for, for Christmas time is we'll be sitting at the table and someone will have a bag of chips in front of them (laughs) and they'll actually push it away from them and say, someone take this away from me. And if they don't take it away, even if though the person pushed it away, they will invariably reach out and grab it and pull it back to them. So you have to take it away. I'm hoping that some 
but he also understands this struggle. I'm sure it's real for other people as well. I hope so. I hope it's not just some weird idiosyncrasy that we have in our family. I can't imagine it is based on the sheer volume of business that chip companies do and the number of chip companies yeah. uh, that there are. And like in my defense, in my small defense, I want to say where I live, I would consider like chip snack capital of USA because there's so many small private organizations and companies here that make chips. In fact, there's one producer of chips that makes old school chips where they actually make them in lard. And it's like some of the best fried potato you've ever eaten. And again, it'll, I'm sure it's, it'll just kill you slowly. Yeah. Or not even that slowly. No, but you'll love it the whole time. You will enjoy it the whole time. Let's, yeah. uh, let's move on. Cause now <laughs> I'm feeling like I need to go to the store and get a bag of chips. So let's move on to our topic, Jesse, before we both have to abandon this and go somewhere that has chips. Go eat some chips. Yeah. Well, that's again, I can't right now cause they don't exist in my home. I'm pretty upset about it, but it was my own decision. So it's true. What we're talking about on this episode is something that people have asked us about, I would say at least a dozen times in various dimensions. And it's a really great question. And it's coming right after the calendar of our Easter celebration. And it's a question that has to do with the will of God as represented in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus is praying. Yeah. And the question that we've seen it lots of different ways, but it goes something like this. So Jesus is praying in the garden the night before he is to be crucified. And oftentimes we'll go to Matthew 26 and in verse 39, it reads, and going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And so sometimes there is this argument that what we're seeing represented here is this conflicting sense of wills that Jesus and the Father are in conflict because they're not in agreement. And that lack of agreement is expressed in Jesus' prayer here. So that's kind of the context of our, our conversation is what do we make of this? Not just are there two wills, but how can we understand what's going on here? And I would submit like right at the beginning, as we begin to unpack this, that this prelude to suffering that we see here is really an inappropriate frame for conflicting wills. In other words, if we were to look at this passage properly, I don't think we'd necessarily come to this question, but I think oftentimes the question comes from the fact that we're stripping out of context that particular verse. But to set the frame, here's what I would say is that in Gethsemane, there's really this crazy shocking contrast with the prior events of Holy Week. And I think if you go through and just read the account, anyone on the Gospels, you'll see that because the events of Passion Week up to this point, I think anyway, seem to have like a sense of divine control. All of it is under divine control, but it seems more explicit up to this point. And in his handling of each situation in the unfolding of the drama of Passover, the, which is the prelude to his death, Jesus expressed almost like a calm dignity. You see, there's like a quiet power yeah. that cannot help but evoke awe and amazement. We see like here is the God-man in control of all things. He's explaining what's going to happen and he's not freaking out about anything. He's very much in control. But with Gethsemane, everything seems to change. Suddenly the sovereign son of God is found beseeching the father that if possible, he be spared this horrid death. And we ought to ask why, what happens here? What is this juxtaposition? And so the first place I start that I think is significant is where all this is happening, why it's happening in Gethsemane. And of course, many people know that Gethsemane means oil press. So I think what's amazing in God's sovereignty is, again, proving that he's in control of all things and things are certain, is that the choice of the garden is likely not insignificant. So as yeah. in a garden, Adam's sin and self-focus totally ruined us, 
So in another garden, the agony and self-focus of the second Adam should restore us. And I like what D.A. Carson says here. He has this quote about the garden and this interaction. He says, in the first garden, not your will, but mine changed paradise to desert and brought man from Eden to Gethsemane. Now, not my will, but yours brings anguish to the man who prays it, but transforms the desert into the kingdom and brings man from Gethsemane to the gates of glory. So I wanted to start here and get your thoughts on what do we make of like where this is happening and in the frame, the whole environment, the context in which this phrase is going to be drawn out. Why is that significant? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, the way that I look at this, I, I actually think it's probably a similar kind of question to when we talk about the cry of dereliction on the cross, right? When, when Christ says, uh, says on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right. You know, we, we sort of paint this picture like Christ for his entire human life is walking in perfect accord with and perfect will of the father. Um, and, and it's not as though all of those experiences were always pleasant. Right. So so Christ, uh, we don't have any specific evidence that he he became ill, but there's no reason to think he didn't. Um, right. There's no reason to think he couldn't have become ill. So, so it's not as though uh, his life up to this point was always pleasant. And so agreeing with the father's will was, was sort of easy. And then all of a sudden things get tough and, and Christ is like begging the father, you know, not to not to do this. That, that's the picture that I think a lot of people get when they read this passage or, you know, Christ, Christ probably experienced some times where he felt sort of forsaken by the father in, in sort of a, an earthly sense throughout his ministry, right? We see him weep at the grave of Lazarus. We, we hear about, you know, there are times when like his own brothers kind of disown him. Right. There are lots of times where he probably felt as though in, in sort of a human sense, as though he was in this situation that kind of the, kind of the, um, why God, why are you doing this sort of the Job perspective on it? But he didn't ever pray to God in a way that was recorded. And then all of a sudden on the cross, he's like, why has God forsaken me? So I think if we, if we just approach these passages without understanding the context, as you're pointing out, it's really kind of laughable to think that Christ had this iron resolution to turn his face towards is towards Jerusalem that he must go and die. It's not like this was a surprise to him. And then all of the sudden out of nowhere, almost he kind of lost his nerve. It just doesn't really make a lot of sense. So I think it's really important for us to recognize and put this in the whole, uh, the entire context of not just the passion week, but also in the context of his whole life as well. Yeah, that's good because it strikes me that there's a lot happening here. That's the culmination of so much else. And I think what you said is really helpful in that. I think maybe of all the resources I've read, I think you would probably agree with this. I think one that does the best at really emphasizing that Jesus learned obedience and that more or less by study of the scriptures, which this just will make your mind implode that like he learned obedience to the study of the scriptures. Mark Jones in his book, and now I just lost the title. What is it? Um, knowing Christ. Knowing Christ. Thank you. Then, wow, that seems like I should have been able to grab that. <laughs> Does like a super good job at emphasizing that all of that obedience came about through Jesus' study of the scriptures. So he's almost, in a sense, he makes the argument in the book, like learning of himself, about himself by way of the scriptures through the Father, as anybody else might study the scriptures and learn in a similar fashion. And so it's not like he's caught off guard here. And where I want to kind of go with this too, is that there's a sense when we kind of get to this prayer that 
Jesus is afraid to die. And that goes against everything you just said, because he, he's certainly well aware that's coming. So we, it's almost like we have to strip away the reasons why Jesus could be saying these. And one of the reasons that we need to strip away immediately is that he's afraid to undertake a physical death. That, that's not primarily what's happening here. And so I think it's helpful to remember that we have in Jesus Christ, this exemplar of learning obedience through the scriptures. And then really he is the, the suffering servant, not just because he dies on the cross, but because of everything, basically his entire life is like one of immense and amazing discipline, which certainly yeah. required a self-sacrifice prior to this point. Like everywhere we see, like I often think about this with Jesus. I ask that God would give me the same type of discipline in lots of areas of my life, because here you have Jesus essentially working hard, ministering, but then like how many times is he out late at night praying or up early in the morning? Like, when did this dude sleep? Like he's still yeah. truly God and truly man. And he shows an amazing ethic towards service to God. And that certainly came with a fair amount of sacrifice and just downright suffering. So by the time he gets to the garden, this idea that somehow his will is opposed to God, if the will was opposed to God, it would have happened in earnest, well before this point. Like, does that make sense to right. you? Yeah. You know, I think sometimes we, we, if we're not careful, we think that the suffering of Christ maybe started in Gethsemane, maybe when he's sweating, you know, he's sweating as great drops of blood. Maybe that's when the agony started. But in reality, you know, I was actually reading in Witsius in Economy of the Covenants Between God and Man. He talks a lot about this because there was a perspective in his day uh, that the suffering of Christ, the, the meritorious atoning suffering of Christ happened beginning in the garden and ended when he was raised from, from the grave. But if we look at our confessional documents, right, what is the uh, humiliation of Christ consist of? Well, the Westminster Shorter Catechism says the, the humiliation of Christ consisted in his being born and that in a low condition, right? He was born into a life of poverty, made under the law, right? So the fact that he had to be subservient to a law that he himself was the lawgiver of was another element of his humiliation, uh, that he, um, that he underwent all of the miseries of this world, right? It's inconceivable of me to think or for me to think that Christ as a young man or as a, a young child, a boy didn't like fall and scrape his knee and suffer that pain. Like that, right. that's docetism. If you want to go that route and say, well, Christ never was injured. He was never sick. Um, we know for sure that he suffered the loss of friends and family, right? Joseph disappears off the scene. As far as we can tell, at when Christ was probably a teenager, right? So his earthly father, the man who raised him in respecting humanity, died at some point. You know, it's unlikely that he was still alive later in Jesus' ministry when he's not mentioned anywhere. So, you know, to think that his suffering uh, started in the garden is inconceivable. And to think that it was just this pain of death. Now, uh, we, you and I might disagree a little bit about this. I think probably... Christ was afraid to die. Christ is a human and death is unnatural. Death is death is an enemy and it's it's not normal for a person, it's not godly for a person not to fear death in a certain way, on a certain level. To fear an enemy is a good thing. It's 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 a god-given instinct to fear something that's dangerous. But we paint this picture we, in our minds or sometimes explicitly where Christ is so terrified 
by by the the prospect of death that he's like shaking in his boots begging the father for a different option right begging the father to find some other way to save the elect because he doesn't want to go through this and that is i hope this is not too strong of a statement but that is like this weird mix of piety and blasphemy that is just incoherent because it's trying to really recognize the genuine humanity of Christ, but it's only recognizing the humanity of Christ as though the humanity of Christ was somehow fallen and sinful and didn't fully trust the father. So I, you know, I really appreciate that this question comes up and I appreciate the context that it comes up in of trying to understand this, this seeming contradiction between the will of Christ and the will of the father in the garden. But if we start from the perspective that Christ is actually somehow contradicting the will of God, knowingly contradicting the will of God in his own will, well, then we've lost salvation entirely because that's a sin. So we have to, we have to navigate around this carefully. You know, if you were to ask me what the most difficult passage in the Bible is to interpret, I actually think that this section in Matthew or the, the parallels in, in uh, Luke and Mark, this is actually the one I would point to because it, it causes us to have to rethink everything we know about what it really means to be human in terms of facing death. And that's a hard pill to swallow, especially since most of us have never really faced death. So we don't really know the feelings that would be going through our minds in the the face of certain death. Um, So we have to kind of rethink the whole package. So I get what you're saying. I think there's something valuable there with understanding the fact that death is uh, the human enemy and that we have some sense of natural fear of that which is unknown to us. And which scares us. So I think I get what you're saying there. I would nuance it a bit. And I think my perspective is that when we look and see all of those throughout history who have been glad to go to their deaths for the gospel, that what we see in Jesus is not primarily, maybe that's a better way of me saying it, primarily about a fear of physical death. Right. Though because he is human, there is a part of that in which to be human is to understand that death is a reality and therefore to have some concern, let's say, over it. Yes. But it's more what you just said at the end there, the latter points about we sometimes make that the dog and rather than the tail that what we have here is when Jesus says, I don't, okay, if this cup, if this hour can be passed from me, that's what I would prefer. I mean, one might also say like, well, what would Jesus go back to? Like, is he really right. asking a question here or is he in a sense displaying for us and for all of his posterity through his line? So for us to see what it means to suffer and die properly in the sense that he is willing to be submissive to the father's will, which is of course also his will. I think it might be helpful. I've been thinking about this and trying to find like how others have described this. And so let me throw out like at least what I can discern of like three different ways of kind of describing this display that we have here. And it is a graphic display. I mean, I think again, if, if you're tracking with, the son of God and you're reading the gospels when we get to the garden, it's almost like, what is happening here all of a sudden? Uh, Because it is like a display of emotion that we see from Jesus. That's not actually unusual, but it is, there is of an order of magnitude, which maybe we haven't yet seen except for like in glimpses, like you said with Lazarus. And so I think the question is why would the son of God display such anguish and distress in the face of a future that he himself prophesied? I mean, that's like a really interesting situation that we have here. So here's what I, I found. Some have argued that, this idea of like, quote unquote, the cup and quote unquote, the hour from which he prayed for deliverance was not death on Calvary, but rather the intense suffering and agony of Gethsemane itself. Now, if that sounds strange to some people's ears, that's actually like Spurgeon style. That's where he was at. 
on this. And yeah. that would be his advocate. He would advocate that view. Another would be that some would suggest that Jesus was not seeking deliverance from death on the cross, but from premature death in Gethsemane at the hands of Satan. And so in this view, Jesus was just praying for strength to reach the cross, not mercy to escape it. And yet one last one before I get to the one that probably you and I share would be another view is that Jesus was not requesting exemption from the cross, but that his suffering there not be prolonged for eternity. So like, how, how do you see these views? Are, are these ones, are there some other ones actually that you, that would pop out to you that in the course of conversation about this text come up? Yeah. I mean, so all of those views, right. To, to sort of draw a, a single thread through them, all of those views are trying to avoid the same problem. Right. And the yes. problem is um, that Christ knows he's he's going to the cross. He knows that that's the will of the father. He not only prophesied it of himself, but he himself was part of the uh, was a, a member of the Trinity planning this from all eternity past. Right. So it's not as though he didn't know this was coming. Um, so they're trying to grapple with the fact that Christ really appears on face value to be asking God to find some other way to do this whole salvation thing that doesn't involve him suffering on the cross, right? So they're trying to grapple with that. I think that this is the result, these three views, although I, I think they're all a little bit ridiculous in their own way, um, these three views only come about if you actually are trying to maintain the orthodox position on this, that right. that Christ's will is not contradictory to the Father's, that Christ is aware of what's going to happen on the cross, that he knows that this is the Father's will, that it is, in fact, his own will to go to the cross, that it is his meat to do the will of the Father, not something he does grudgingly. There are a whole host of other views, some of them which we've alluded to, that are just straight out heresy, or they at least they collapse into heresy if you if you follow them to their conclusion, right? The idea that Christ literally is opposed to the Father's will, that right. the Father wants him to go to the cross, and he doesn't want to, so he's asking the Father for a different option. Like, that that ends up in actually multiple heresies. <laughs> it ends up in, in a weird Nestorianism, right, where you have two wills in the Son, which is true, but you have two wills in the sun that are not in accord with each other, which ends up with this sort of dual personality thing that Nestorianism is, is a hallmark of. Um, or you end up with weird Trinitarian views where the, the will of there's one will in the sun, kind of a la Wayne Grudem sort of. Um, and that one will in the sun is, is, you know, different than the will of the father. Well, you have to ask the question then, well, is that will changed? Is that will different than it was in eternity right. past when the father, son and spirit decreed that this would come to pass. Right. So you've got these other views as well that sort of fall outside of this realm of orthodox. Um, I want to say this kindly because I don't think anybody is trying to do anything, uh, you know, untoward here, but sort of fall outside of this realm of the gymnastics that some people who hold an orthodox Christology have to do to try to make sense of this, uh, of this passage. Yeah, that's helpful. I mean, I think really, and, and this may be a perspective. I don't know, actually. I think there's really one explanation here. My interpretation or my opinion is that Jesus was asking the father to remove the cup from him if that should be his will, the father's will. But note that Jesus asked for the removal of the cup on one condition, only if the father should will it. If the father willed it, so did Jesus. So my explanation, understanding of what's happening in Gethsemane is that basically the death of our Lord or the death that he envisioned, the sufferings that he knew lay before him was not just mere physical death. It was not an ordinary martyr's anguish. 
It was nothing short of the death and sufferings of one who offers himself as a penal substitutionary sacrifice for sinners. It was the cup of divine and holy wrath he was to drink. It was the father's cup he was to drink. And I think that why there is such agony and anguish here is because we often think when we, we understand Paul saying like Christ became Jesus became sin for us. I think sometimes in our mind, we just make a loose association. Like, well, here's Jesus stepping forward to take punishment. We use all these grand analogies, like, you know, a judge and being convicted and Jesus coming forward and saying, no, I'll take the punishment instead. It's not like exactly that, right? It's a sense that what Paul is explaining is that Jesus in being made sin for us, like gets all of the odious hate and justice that the father requires. He is seen in that moment as the very thing which the father hates. It's the only way that we can be truly expunged, that sin can be removed. It's not just like a loose sense of, well, let me come and stand in somebody's stead. It's got to be more than that. And so my sense is that what's happening here is Jesus is recognizing that because he's not going to the cross with any kind of false sense. There's no like, I don't know, it's not like fake news here. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like he misunderstands what's about to happen. Yeah. And so this idea of the will, I think, is like secondary to us understanding what's actually happening underneath that prayer. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that that's, I think that that's spot on. And, you know, my view, I, I actually track pretty close with Calvin on this. So I know we joke about not doing uh, a lot of preparation for the show and we don't do a lot of preparation for the show. But for some topics like this, where it is so important to get it right, you and I, I think people can tell, like, you've done a little bit more preparation than we usually do for right. an episode like this. Like, we also planned on doing this episode two weeks ago and that didn't work out. So we've had a little more time to think about it. But here's what here's what Calvin says on this passage. He says, um, we see how Christ restrains his feelings at the outset and quickly, quickly brings himself into a state of obedience. But here it may be first inquired. How was his will pure from all vice while it did not agree with the will of God? So this is the question that's being asked is how could Christ have a will that is in any way, even if we say it's not at odds with the will, with the will of the father, how could it be different than the will of the father? Right. That's what Calvin is asking. And he says, the will of God is the only rule of what is good and right. It follows then that all the feelings which are at variance with it are vicious. And his reply is, although it's true, uh, it may be true rectitude to regulate all of our feelings by the good pleasure of God. There's a certain kind of indirect disagreement with it, which is not faulty and not reckoned as sin. And that's something that we, we have to get our heads around. And what he's saying is, the will of God has a revealed and a, uh, and a hidden aspect to it, right? There's the revealed will of God, which primarily comes in the form of his scripture and, and, and the light of nature, right? Even those who do not read the scripture know that it's wrong to murder. That's the revealed will of God or to kill, e- even to kill lawfully should not be something that we desire to do. Right. Um, and so he, he gives this example. He says, a person desires to see the church in a calm and flourishing condition. He wishes that the children of God were delivered from all affliction, that all superstition were removed out of the world and the rage of wicked men were so restrained as not to do injury. These things being in themselves right may properly be desired by believers, though it may please God to desire and order a different state of matters. So in our own current context, it is good and right and righteous and and important and mandatory for Christians to pray that our communities would be safe from the coronavirus, that people would remain healthy, that people would not die from this and that God would bring a swift end to this plague. I mean, it's plague is the only appropriate word for it, right? That does not mean 
that God's actual will is for any of those things to happen. And we know for a fact that in some places, the opposite is his will for it to happen because it has. And so we can pray something that is in accord with God's revealed will, right? Revealed in the scripture and by the light of nature. We can pray in accord with that revealed will and still be at variance with the decreed will, how God actually orders things to come to pass without any sin. And so in the garden, I think what we have is one part And I say this carefully because it's not as though Christ is just doing this to be an example for us. But what we have in the garden is Christ exemplifying this. He knows the secret will of the father. He knows that the the secret will of the father uh, to him is not a secret, right? The secret will of the father is for him to go to the cross and die, to die a death that he does not deserve, to be convicted of a crime that he did not commit, to have believers uh, or to have followers who who should follow him desert him. He knows all of these things. Yet he still in the garden exemplifies for us praying in accord with God's revealed will, right? To to live, right? A person who is facing death, a Christian who is facing death, and this this might ruffle some feathers, especially in the current context. Um, a person who is facing death should not be facing it happily, right? They should be praying that God delivers them from that death. Right. Whether it's death at the hands of the enemies of God's people, right, in persecution, whether it is death in the face of sickness or disease or accident, God's people, Christians should, in the words of the catechisms, right, should take every lawful endeavor to preserve their own life and the life of others. That includes lawfully praying that God would deliver us from evil, right? Deliver us from the evil one, deliver us from the evils of this world. But at the same time, we should recognize that sometimes it is not God's will to do so. So I may be facing certain death and I may be relatively certain that, that God is bringing me to that, right? I could be in a crashing plane, right? I could be plummeting to the earth at a, at a speed that there's no possible way I'm going to survive it apart from divine intervention. I should be begging God to save my life. That, that is a good and appropriate thing to do. That's as close as we can get to knowing the, the the secret will of God is being in one of those situations that apart from some kind of miracle, we are going to die. Christ is in a situation like that, except that he knows the secret will of God, but yet he still is praying according to the revealed will of God. So right. like I said, there's definitely more than Christ being an example happening here, but there isn't less. Christ is showing us how to pray according to the moral will of God, the revealed moral will of God, even in circumstances where we believe he is decreeing something contrary to that or something different than that. He's ordering things in a different way than the way we would think he would according to his moral will. And that is the answer, I think. I mean, not to put too fine a point on it. And unfortunately, it's the kind of thing that requires like discussion. There's no easy one sentence answer per se to unpacking this because it's worth unpacking because there's something deep and beautiful and glorious and dark all happening at the same time in this account. And like, even, even with what you just said, amazingly, like there's all these, like these roots and these, like these spreading out of networks that come from this particular account, because like amazingly in the midst of that anguish and that torment while he's praying, it was the welfare of the disciples that was uppermost on Jesus mind, like no less than twice does Jesus interrupt his prayer and he goes out to see if they were holding up under the strain. So like parenthetically here, Jesus is willing to suffer basically an eternity of hell for them and they cannot suffer an hour for him. So like even in the midst of everything you just said here, we see like Jesus doesn't stop, like can't stop, won't stop. He's always 
exhibiting and showing the will of the father. And so even if you were just to take this one instance and measure it up against, or try to bring it into comport with everything else that's happened in the scriptures, we'd say, well, if we misinterpret just what's happening here and we hold up that misinterpretation against everything else in the scriptures, we should be able to say Sesame street style, which one of these things is not like the other. Clearly my interpretation of this thing is wrong just based on the full scope and breadth of life of Jesus Christ. Yeah. And, and you know, the other thing that I think is important is, um, you know, the, the Westminster catechism, you can tell that I've been redoubling my efforts to memorize it because yeah, you are all I, over I'm that quoting it all over the place. But when, when we talk about Christ's humiliation and we talk about the, the threefold offices of Christ, right? Christ in, as our redeemer, Christ executes the office of a prophet, a priest and a king, Right. both in his his state of humiliation and exaltation. And so the primary things that we identify when Christ is operating as a priest is that he offers himself up as a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and in making continual intercession for us. Well, when we read that, we think about him operating in heaven, making intercession for us. But this too in the garden is him, although yes. he's praying for himself, he's also interceding on our behalf. Right. And so this is the other element of it is I, I've mentioned this before and I, I didn't really get a lot of blowback on it because I think people might, it might, it was just kind of something we said in passing. In essence, Christ is repenting in the garden on our behalf, right? He is, he is going to the cross. He knows that he is going to be sa- suffering the result of the sin of his people. He is, he is, he is not a sinner. He's not becoming a sinner, but he is going to be punished as a sinner in the place of his, uh, of his people. Right. The only proper response when you recognize that you are a sinner who is being, uh, punished by God, the only appropriate righteous response is repentance. And so when Christ asks for this cup to pass from him, we should not read this as though he is begging the father to find some other way, right? God, maybe you didn't think of all the different options. So could you maybe, before I go do this, could you just run the scenario in your divine mind again and make sure there's not some other way to do it, right? That's not what's going on. That is absolutely not what's going on. I've heard people say basically that's what's going on. And that's blasphemous nonsense, right? To think that the God of the universe somehow for, could have possibly forgot about one of the options is right. just nonsense. Instead, Christ on behalf of his people is asking for the cup of suffering, the cup of God's wrath to pass by. He's begging for the cup of God's wrath to pass by him on behalf of his people. And this is where it gets, I think this is where it gets us messed up in our mind is that the cup of God's wrath, God answered Christ's prayer that the cup would pass by for his people. But the way that he answered that prayer is by pouring out that cup of God's wrath entirely upon Christ. And that that's the beauty of this uh, pericope, if you ask me, is that Christ asks for something, knowing what the answer is. He knows that the answer is, it is not my will for this cup of suffering right, to pass exactly. by you. Right. You know, some of the gospel writers like Matthew says, if it is possible, we read in Luke, he's much clearer on this particular point. It's not about whether God could find some other way to do it. It's about whether, it, whether God be willing for some other way to occur. It, it, God, if you're willing for something to happen, if you're willing for this cup to pass by me, then so be it. But nevertheless, your will, but not your will or not my will, but yours be done. Christ willingly prays for the cup to pass, knowing that the answer is no, 
right. in reference to him individually. But knowing that the way that his prayer on behalf of his people will be answered is for that cup to pass by us onto him. Right. So I, I, you know, this is one of those things that I get a little bit fired up when, when people preach this wrong, because it, it maligns the name of Jesus to think that somehow he was, he was at odds with the father. It Christologically is a disaster. If you think that somehow the human will of Christ was at odds with the divine will of Christ, it tears apart the, the unity of the Trinity, but, but most importantly of all, it totally evacuates Christ of his mediatorial act in this. And, and, even in this, right, as a prophet, Christ reveals to us by his word and spirit, the will of God for our salvation. Well, the fact that he's asking for the cup to pass on behalf of his people reveals to us the will of God for our salvation. So right. I just think we have to get this passage right. Right. Yeah. Are you sure you get fired up? I couldn't tell. <laughs> I'm calm. Well, you're right. I'm, I'm you're sweating. Right you're right to, yeah, you look a little sweaty. You're right to, because this is of tremendous import. And so hopefully what we've kind of tried to unpack here is, is helpful to some that maybe are thinking about it in that way for the first time. I think maybe like a suitable place to kind of land this and draw it all together is you referenced Christ crying out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it just to kind of, I think, put a bow on what we've said and to kind of provide further support that Jesus was aware of all these things. And when he's praying, he's still praying in the will of the father. And I think there's maybe lots of examples we could use, but they would all fall short if we try to draw metaphors around how we often act like that in our own lives with the people that we love and trust. We, we ask something knowing that what we're asking is we're, we're united in a particular direction. And, you know, even if that's to me saying to my wife, do you want me to go to the grocery store to buy chips now? or later, my will is with hers, which is to get the chips, but I can do it now. Or I can do it later. I'm, I'm doing that in accordance. Sometimes I think even the question itself, just the way it's translated smacks more of this argument in a way than what's actually being said. But even with all that aside, you know, when Jesus is on the cross and he's expressing that sense of forsakenness, of course, most of us realize, but we should always remind ourselves that he's quoting from Psalm 22. And so what he's doing for those who are present there is he's drawing all of humanity, all of the existence, all of the story arc of God's narrative in redemption back into the same place. So they would have been made painfully aware when he quoted that, what he was saying was something from what David penned in a different situation, but which was looking forward to this exact event where the mediatorial work of the savior would take place. So there's just like cohesive beauty, no matter where you look. I don't think you can run away from the fact that what we have here is actually a unification of will. This is not, as some might posit, a real sense of conflict. It just can't be. And if you look at the full breadth and scope of everything that you said and everything that you just said, not only does it break down consistently logically in terms of like the theological implications, but beyond that, the scriptures give us no reason to believe that what's happening here is, is some real battle of the wills. It just, we, we yeah. just have nothing to stand on with respect to that argument. Yeah. And you know, the, the other um, thing that maybe I can close with is I think sometimes we under uh, emphasize the realness of the incarnation with the way we approach this. Right. So, so we shouldn't typically do this, but if we were to put ourselves in this situation, Right. If we were to put ourselves in a situation where we were facing certain death, we somehow knew that it was God's will. Do we think that we were we would not in our own human frailty somehow be asking God if there was any way to avoid it, 
even if right. we knew there wasn't. Like sure. it's it's it, it's inconceivable that our human weakness, our our infirmities, would not be begging God to find some other way to avoid the suffering, which we know is unnatural, which we know is not is not good. Well, Christ took on our common infirmities, right? So here, here's here's what Calvin says uh, as well. Now, I don't know that I want to go as far as Calvin does on this, but he says, when the dread of death was presented to Jesus's mind and brought along with it such darkness that he left out of you everything else and eagerly presented that prayer, there was no fault in this, nor is it necessary to enter any subtle controversy whether or not it was possible for him to forget our salvation. We ought to be satisfied with this single consideration, that at the time when he uttered a prayer to be delivered from death, he was not thinking of other things which would have shut the door against such a wish. So, so that's the other element of this question is that people, people think that Christ has a single mind and that that mind is divine. They're, they're this un, unwitting Apollinarians where they think Christ has just this somehow superhuman mind. But Christ also has a human mind that operates not independently, but distinctly from the divine mind, right? If it didn't operate distinctly in some way, then we've lost salvation because whatever Christ did right. not assume, he has not healed. And Christ had to have assumed a human mind that did not have direct access to the divine mind, except in ways when God chose to reveal it through his word, through revelation, through prophetic utterances, etc. So to think that Christ going to his certain death would not have in his human mind that this is not desirous, that it is not desirous to suffer and die apart from the overarching desire to save God's people and to please the father. What Calvin is saying here is that he didn't bring those other things with him in this prayer. And that means, and this is, this is where the encouragement comes in. That means that we also do not need to qualify every single one of our prayers with endless qualifications about other right. things that we believe God is doing. If I'm suffering and dying for the gospel, when I pray to God and say, Lord, please, I'm so tired. I'm so discouraged of the suffering that I have to undergo in order to serve you. I don't have to feel guilty that I ask God to take that suffering away. I don't have to spend more time qualifying that prayer by saying, uh, yeah, I recognize that this is your will. I recognize that you're doing this. You know, I, I understand this, God, but please, in light of all that, could you please take it? Like, we don't have to do that. And Christ gives us this beautiful example that all we have to all we have to do after we've brought our petitions to the Lord, after we've brought our concerns to God and we've cast our cares upon Christ is to simply say, not my will, but yours be done. This is, this is what I desire, Lord. This is what I want, or this is what I don't want, but I'm obedient to your will. That's the only qualification that we need to make. And we know that because that's the only qualification Christ makes. Right. That's well said. I think that's as best a place as any to end this conversation. I really hope that's been helpful. And again, we appreciate everybody who writes in with questions, who sends us voicemails. Please keep those coming because we're going to do a lot more of these question casts or a lot more episodes that are derived from some type of question. And like I said, we've gotten this question quite a bit. So yeah. I think it does come up common, especially among believers or nominal Christians that are really trying to understand what exactly is happening. Or even as we talked about briefly before this, we started recording, I've had this question come up with Mormons in particular who believe that there's like a special partial atonement that happens in the garden because of this interaction. 
And so we need to be clear in our understanding of what actually is taking place here. And yeah. hopefully we added some clarity. I don't know if we can call this the definitive episode. Definitely but... not. <laughs> Definitely not. I mean, it's it's definitive insofar as we basically just read and synthesized and repeated what Calvin true. has to say. So that's just go true. get Calvin. That's true. Yeah, that should be that. That could cover, I would say, at least like sixty percent of our episodes. Like, just go look at Calvin. Just get yeah, a copy. Just of go read Calvin. You'll be totally fine. So, yeah. Yeah. This is this has well, been great, Tony. <laughs> I love when we talk about how great our show is. <laughs> That's my favorite. When we we spend significant amounts of time talking about how great our own show is. You know, I was talking to somebody the other day and, and I actually don't remember who it was, but I was I was just saying maybe it was when we were trying to get this this society back up and running is, you know, we just make podcasts that we would like to listen to. Like, yes, that's the secret. If you're if you're wanting to start a podcast and you feel like it's above your capacity, just make a podcast that you would be satisfied to listen to and the audience will build itself. And if it doesn't, then you are at least enjoying what you're doing. And that's really yeah, all that's well said. It. That's really good advice. Hey, so, there's something else that you can add to your quarantine time. If you find a little space in there. This might be the perfect time to experiment with that podcast that you always wanted to start. It's true. One last little funny thing before we break for the day. So part of having to register this new feed, uh, which I, I appreciate all the people who bore with us as we as I figured out the different feed stuff. But part of the funny part about registering is you have to basically re-register all your different feeds and like the categories your show goes into and all this stuff. You know, so there's there's two categories I always put us in. There's the general religion and spiritual uh, spirituality category. And then there's the subcategory for Christianity. And I always have this. Usually there's a third category that I'm not quite sure what to do with. Most of the time I throw us in the education category. But I was really, really tempted to throw us in the healthcare category just for fun. <laughs> but I was like, I don't know. I work in healthcare, so I feel like maybe I shouldn't joke around with that, especially now. That's fair. That's fair. We yeah. get we get selected in there anyway. We don't have to do anything it's for true. us to be kind of thrown into that. I will say I've been so it was like I was feeling for people who were saying, man, we can't get your stuff. And I was also so touched by so many who wrote in like some people actually sent us an email that said, are you guys OK? I can't yeah. get anything after episode 179, which we talked about was ironic because that was 179 <laughs> yeah. marked like the episode that overtook the reform podcast. And so did you hear that? Like, it's impossible not to say podcast without the less accent. I know. Podcast. I know um, it's tough. And so I just thought it was so funny that as if like we were sending some kind of weird actual signal that 179 was it. We're just going to go one more over <laughs> them and then shut it down. Shut it down. We realize we're never going to catch up to the reform forum. So we'll, that's it. We're, we're just going to go out on a high note. The next time we make an episode will be the next time the pubcast does. We just have to stay one <laughs> ahead of them. <laughs> uh, well, speaking of shutting it down and amazing segues, I think that's about it for us on this episode. What do you think? I agree. After you, my friend. Oh, oh, this is nice. Well, until next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. <laughs>